Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. My name's Ariel Goldberg. Welcome to The Poetry Project. I'm the Friday Night Coordinator here, and I'm so thrilled to be hosting Svetlana Kiddo and Nicole Seely, so please give them a round of applause. When reading Svetlana Kiddo, I'm thinking of the genre of nonfiction mixed with journalism and the specific subject matter of documenting queer histories. Queer histories being among those who Svetlana writes have to fight to walk down the street or who depend on alliance to become legible. Her wide-ranging investigative journalism piece in Vice, which made me have more respect for Vice magazine than I've ever had, um, is on the gay rights movement in Riga, Latvia. And I learned so much about gay rights organizing in post-Soviet Eastern European countries from this article. I highly recommend all of you to read it. As Svetlana traces through her own family, the Eastern European cultures that have been transplanted in the U.S. can also resonate as unfamiliar, withdrawn, and dispersed. What and who gets investigative about family portraits and documenting one's own activism is a question I ask when thinking about kiddos' work. Lana has also written about fighting stop and frisk in New York City and volunteering after Hurricane Sandy. What makes this type of fiction nonfiction and nonfiction also fiction is her playfulness with self as narrator. She says things like, uh, I'm a vegetarian, and how that doesn't always translate to her grandparents. Or, I don't need a man because I'm a lesbian. Svetlana acts as a messenger. That's like a, um, that's not an exact quote. Um, no, no, I'm, it's sort of what I took away. Anyway. Svetlana asks as a messenger between, I've never had somebody laugh so much at my introduction, just right here. Svetlana acts as a messenger between the Jewish immigrant worlds of the U.S. and Latvia. The way she finds humor in where language isn't caught is like a ball dropping. She notices, records, and loops it back into language, tying knots to make a friendship bracelet between reader and narrator. Her way of seeing dialogue, sewing dialogue into her prose makes the external and internal voices of her stories blend, very matter-of-fact. Dialogue is like a tour guide. Svetlana's grandmother says, for example, here is where you could buy Latvian souvenirs for your friends. Then Lana writes, the last time they came to Latvia, they brought me home a pair of gray winter socks. They look nice, but the thick wool thread had no stretch, so I could only pull them on over my toes. Please help me in welcoming <laughs> Svetlana Kiddo. Thanks, Ariel. That, that was amazing. Um, I'm really humbled and flattered to be here. I love the Poetry Project, and I've, I've loved it for as long as I've lived here. Um, and um, so I'm gonna, the first thing I'm gonna read is actually gonna, it's about um, this neighborhood, which I love as well. And it's called Wasting Time at the Old St. Mark's Books. About once a week, someone wanders into Panya a Japanese deli on East 9th Street at 3rd Avenue and asked for the bookstore that used to be next door. The old St. Mark's bookshop acted as an ambassador to the East Village from 1977 to 2014, specializing in poetry, cultural theory, film studies, and neighborhood-related materials. 
They must not know that they closed. I hope they reopen, the student working behind the counter at Panya informs me. She's only been there for two months, and like the visitors who come into the deli in search of the old St. Mark's, as if it were an old friend who didn't leave a forwarding address, she hadn't known that the bookstore had moved to 126 East 3rd Street more than a year ago, or that this past week it had announced plans to permanently close that location too. Oh, that's so sad, she says when I tell her the news. I didn't even know they reopened. Did they change the name when they moved? No, I say, same name, just a different location. But if it wasn't on St. Mark's anymore, why would they keep the name? In 2012, when St. Mark's announced that it couldn't survive the raised rents at 3rd Avenue, it was hard to believe that it could really actually be forced to move. How could an NYC institution be so vulnerable? And when a social media campaign, a fundraising drive, and a petition still couldn't save it, it was hard to contemplate its new location as fact. Where was the new one again? A place is more than its name. Its power comes from the meaning we make of our physical relationship to it over time. When I think of the old St. Mark's bookshop on 3rd Avenue, I think of the many days and evenings I spent there killing time trying to get rid of a loneliness that was so much a part of my early years in New York. I can't think of it without thinking of its neighbors, the places around it that I found myself in or near. There was a jewelry store called Unique Collection on St. Mark's Place that I used to visit with my friend Clotta, who liked surveying their assortment of crystals, rocks, and geodes, narrating their attributes aloud as we walked around the store. Next door was Papaya King, a brightly colored hot dog chain that reminded me of my English father with his love for all things cheap and Americana. There was Ray's Pizza, which reliably radiated an orange oily light and was always good for a late night run. The dingy McDonald's up the block provided the only bathroom one could easily duck into without anyone noticing. That placed me right next to 31 Third Avenue, home to the old St. Mark's books. There was nothing spectacular about the building, a simple brick that looked like it belonged to a newer New York than other buildings in the neighborhood did. The front of the bookstore met at a diagonal with the building next to it, and the angled arch archway above it made the structure look like a doctor's office. New books were arranged plainly in the display window, which neatly framed the cashier and floor-through view of all the beautiful art books, definitely the store's main event. The look of it reminded me of a bookstore I used to go to as a kid in Hollywood called Crown Books, where I would pick up the latest Babysitter's Club. My recollections of the physical space begin as a gauzy collage of images, a sort of macro memory that stands in for a series of indistinct minutes, hours, times spent in the place. In no particular order, I remember it being one of those bookstores where a book would find me. I remember the location prompting me to buy books written by writers from the East Village. I remember hearing rumors about a diner with a big clock that used to be next door. I remember the most exciting shelf being the one with all the new fiction when you walked in. The people I was with tended toward the art books, always. I remember how lonely I felt as I recommitted myself to the fiction section. I remember the gay section. I remember going there to look at magazines alone. I remember making a beeline for the section to see my name in print for the first time. I remember the first time this happened, flipping to the masthead and seeing my name was misspelled. I remember sending a copy of it to my grandma. I remember one cold rainy evening at St. Mark's Bookshop, spending what felt like a very long time waiting for the girl I was seeing to show up. 
She worked at a fancy restaurant in Midtown and told me she would text me as soon as she was off work. It was late, my phone was dying, and I felt very sad and anxious. It wasn't so much that I thought she would stand me up, it was the knowing feeling that it wasn't gonna work out between us, which I was having a hard time accepting. As I sat in the fiction section waiting for her text message, a rather unhelpful question began to gnaw at me. Why had I wasted so much time? Why hadn't I written a book yet? Annoyed with the familiar line of questioning, my eyes searched the books in front of me and fell on the spine of one by a very old friend of mine from LA. I hadn't, spoke to him in, I hadn't spoken to him in years and had no idea he had published a book. Within a couple minutes, I saw a book by another friend who I had met in New York, and then another friend. My friends were all here, I thought, waiting for me. There was nothing to worry about. When the woman I was dating finally showed up, we had dinner at a Japanese restaurant up the street. I think I saw her one more time after that, but that was the last time I saw the inside of the old St. Mark's bookshop. Back in the present day at Panya, which has been open since 1993, the student behind the counter asks me what I'm reading. The Mare by Mary Gateskill, I tell her. She tells me she's reading Kafka on the shore. I love how he describes things. I can't describe it, she laughs at herself. Before I leave, I order a chocolate mousse set in a heart-shaped mold. It's a valentine to myself, I tell her. Her face lights up in solidarity. That's okay, I was alone on Valentine's Day too. I took myself out on a date. She went to the museum, she says, and then she went to hear some Japanese drummers in the park, and then she got a Big Mac. I make a note to myself, get back to wasting time. Um, and this, uh, the next thing I'm gonna read is called Pervs, and it's, um, it's a selection from the novel I'm working on. Make sure it doesn't stick, Grandma says, instructing me from a little stool next to the stove. She floats up slowly, takes the two wooden spatulas into her hands, and flips each potato pancake flatly to the other side. Like this, she says. She peeks into the bowl of grayish-pink batter. If it gets gray, you make more flour, and she shakes some in from the white bag. It's the middle of August, and my grandmother Bella and I are frying latkes in her apartment in Riga, where her and my grandfather now spend their summers. As I cook, I keep glancing out the small window that faces Brevi Bus Street. I am daring it to get dark, but the sky is light purple and will stay light until four in the morning. I have jet lag, which my grandparents do not believe is a real thing. <laughs> Far above our heads, in the corner where the ceiling meets the wall, a tiny zenith TV lords over the kitchen, which is small and painted beige and white. A trim of apples in various states of dramatic repose, sliced and whole with leafy stem and without, runs along the kitchen walls, matching up with the red apples splashed on the oven mitts that hang on the stove. When we aren't talking, Grandma's face tilts up to the television screen. Paul Newman, she says, smiling. I love him. With the money, he starts new a charity, and he makes lemonade and popcorn and many other things, and all the money goes to helping people, and he is Jewish, she squints at the TV, and so handsome. But now he's dead like everybody's. Like this, they don't have actors anymore. She strains to peer over the side of the pan from her low stool. How are your pancakes? Very good, I say, pushing at them with the spoon. Then leave them alone, Misha. 
Her hair is thin and dark gray, cropped close to her head in what I called a stylish page boy when I first saw her at the airport the day before yesterday. She'd swatted the compliment away, her watery brown eyes and freckly forehead crinkling in bemusement. Now she stares through the space between my shirt and the pan, wearing a nightgown with little blue flowers so faint they look like stains. She has a peach napkin in her hands that she shreds into a little pile on her lap. Her new habit is chewing at the insides of her cheek and moving her jaw around like she's looking for something in her mouth. She starts. Latvia just had her big festival of song, a song festival. I don't know how to say it in English. She squints. And every village comes to show itself. And did you know every village in Latvia has its own costume? Every single one. Her eyes light up and her neck lengthens. And so beautiful they are, all the little girls, their hair so in bows. And uh, she makes a ball with her hands on the top of her head. I used to make your mommy so too, just like a doll. Every morning, she always looked the best. I wouldn't let her leave the house without a bow. And, uh, and she makes another ball looking for the word. A bun, I say. I picture the black and white photographs I've seen of my mother as a baby with dimpled thighs and a giant bow in her hair. So every village sends their little girls and they dance their special dancing for that village. And it is so beautiful. And then all the villages sing Latvian songs in one big choir. Yermola has such a beautiful costume and song. We used to take your mommy there in the summertime and rent to Dasha. We will go tomorrow to Yermola, yes? I don't know why you bother asking me when we both know you're in charge of the calendar, I say, putting my hand on my hip in mock irritation. But she isn't paying attention. We can't go to the Jewish Museum to see Grandpa's picture on Saturday because of the Sabbath that will be closed. So maybe on that day we'll go to Rumbula Forest to see the mass grave. And we need to go to the forest at Solkrasti where my parents were killed. She pauses to look at me accusingly. Two weeks is not enough time, Misha. What do you have to rush back to in New York? Good question, I think. I lost all my fact-checking jobs after the so-called economic downturn. All my money is coming from unemployment and the subletter I'm overcharging for my room back in Brooklyn. My roommate is on high alert for any envelopes from the New York Department of Labor. My girlfriend Chloe and I broke up a couple of months ago, and the girl I was sleeping with said that I'm emotionally irresponsible and is no longer speaking to me. I have a life, Grandma! Come on! <laughs> Keep talking. You were saying about the choir. Yes, the choir. On the news, it said it was the biggest choir they have in the world in 2008. 2,000 people on the stage, she pauses. Can you believe it? The world's biggest choir right here in Latvia? No, I can't actually. I try not to laugh. Are you sure that's what they said? She ignores me and continues, petting the top of one freckled hand with the other. But when I was watching this festival, I understood something for the first time. My pancakes are done, I say, turning off the heat. This country is for them, her hands clasped together on her lap. What do you mean? Latvia is for Latvians only. It is not for anybody else, not for Jews, not for nobody. She nods tightly, agreeing with herself. Not for us. I understand now. My grandfather comes into the kitchen from the other room and puts a plate in the sink. He's looking almost preppy in his yellow and plaid shirt and white shorts, black socks pulled tightly up to his knees. I can smell his old spice and see the pomade glistening on the few white hairs he has combed over the top of his head. 
He's, he's going out with his friend Jonas tonight. Well, now they're busy hating the Russians, he says, his bony back hunched over the dishes. If the Latvians hate the Russians, it means they don't hate the Jews, so this is good. But still, you cannot trust not one of them. He turns around to me and raises a soapy finger in the air. Not after how they were acting. Boris, Grandma says loudly from her stool. They're all in Australia, Argentina, America. Those Latvians aren't here, the Nazi ones. They are all escaped. Maybe so, but I can feel it in my heart when I am walking on the street that they hate us here. Come on, Boska, what are you talking? She scoffs, winking at me. No, you don't know nothing, he says to me. And what are you laughing at, Vietchny student? He jerks his head towards me. Do you know what that means, Grandma asks me? No. It means forever student, Grandpa says. That is what you are. I guess I'm okay with that, I shrug. Of course she's okay with that, because one day she's going to be very rich from all her degrees, right? <laughs> Grandma encourages. Right. <laughs> I, had just about to ask, I had been just about to ask her for a couple of lots to get a piroshki from the restaurant downstairs, but I decide to hold off. I fall asleep early on the cot in the living room, kicking the many thick wool blankets Grandma has draped over me onto the floor while I sleep. Around midnight, she turns on the light wildly. No, where is he, she screeches. I squint and see her there, pushing her walker towards the couch. I reach for my glasses and sit up onto the swirl of sheets. Grandma, he goes out every Friday night, and he always comes back. Well, where is he now? He couldn't call not once. He was supposed to be home two hours ago. I've been waiting two hours like a dummy. Grandma, you have to stop. You have to go to sleep and let it go. He's an adult. Where is he? She starts to cry a little bit now. Oh, it's making me sick. I get up and sit next to her on the couch, which is brown and ribbed like a pair of corduroy pants. Grandma, calm down. Come here. I put my head on her hunched shoulder and pet her soft, thin hair. Come on. We'll watch some TV till they get back. I fumble with the remote and flip through the channels. I stop on a woman whose eyes are abnormally deep set. They look like, like they've been smashed into her head with a hammer. She gets up, slowly pours tea from an electric tea kettle, and then takes her tea to the fireplace. She's blind and talking about having to learn how to do things on her own. The next shot of her is in a wedding gown kissing a man in a military uniform. See, even she can get a husband, my grandma jeers at me. Oi, grandma, oi, grandma, she repeats back mockingly. You want me to just marry anyone off the street? No, she says, and he shouldn't be German, no Germans. <laughs> Oh, you've added German to your list? You remember Justina Tochigalia's daughter? She is marrying a German. I am angry of her. She squints at the TV. The blind woman is still talking. Change the channel, Mamonia. Okay, I flip through the channels. I find an old special on VH1 about celebrity couples. This segment is on Lenny Kravitz and Lisa Bonet. Even the cable here feels like it is from the 90s. Her eyes focus on a picture of Lenny Kravitz as a young man with a guitar and an with a guitar. He is Kravitz, she asks. Yeah, he's black and Jewish, I think. She furrows her brow. The next photo is of Lisa Bonet, her long dreadlocks disappearing into the folds of her colorful scarves. Now she is Jewish, Grandma says. I don't think she is. In the next couple minutes, the voiceover reveals that she is half Jewish, half black as well. How did you know, I say. You can always tell by the eyes. She has Jewish eyes. She clasps her hands. No, this is a nice story. They are both the same, and they fall in love. See, everyone sticks to their own, and you should too. Grandma, they're both mixed. That doesn't make any sense. 
Why mix? You don't see mixing with other animals. You'll never see a cat and a dog together. That's because cats and dogs are different species. Humans are all part of the same species. She turns to me and beams. You are so smart, Mamonia. <laughs> she says, grabbing my chin, Chris Savitsa. The phone rings and Grandma picks it up. Now we can rest, Grandma says after she puts down the phone, her whole body relaxing. Grandpa's on his way home. At the sound of his keys in the door, she is up and yelling at him in Russian. But you love Jonas, he reacts in English, clearly for my benefit. I'm the one who doesn't trust him, Misha, he slurs, turning to me. Jonas is good until he talks about Jewish. Then he is a bastard like all the rest of them. He raises his fist. You think it's easy to live with this man, this drunk, she says to me as if, ta as if taking her turn before the judge. I have nerves too. You aren't the only one who was in the war. Okay, goodbye. I take my computer and almost slip as I skid out of there and into the bathroom. I sit down on the toilet and hug the computer into my chest, staring up at the naked bulb, the wretched little fly that occasionally collides into it, and the peeling grayish paint framing the scene. The bathroom, like the other rooms in their Riga apartment, holds faint glimmers of the gated community townhouse back in the East Los Angeles suburb where they live which, by comparison, stands out as the 70s Versailles they always intended it to be. Here, there is no gold-standing toilet paper holder or similarly, similarly gilded towel rack from Home Depot, but there are fluffy towels, a satiny shower curtain, and a gold American-made handrail installed into the side of the bathtub. I crowned the bathroom my office the first night I was here when I discovered I could get on a Wi-Fi network called Darg's 500. I wouldn't have thought that the signal would come through the thick floors of this Soviet building, its halls heavy with the smell of mildew and frying oil. There, Dogs 500 is again when I get onto Wikipedia to look up Grandma's Latvian Song and Dance Festival. Oh, she was right, I mutter. The Latvian Song and Dance Festival is one of the largest amateur choral events in the world <laughs> and an important event in Latvian culture and social life. My next order of business is to write a message to Marina, the young Latvian anarchist I found through my old MySpace account a couple years back. I had searched under the category lesbian, and Marina was the only person that came up who didn't look like a porn star. Hey, Marina, it's me, Misha, again. I'm really, I've really and actually arrived in Riga. I was wondering if you wanted to meet up and go to this club called Pervs I found in my travel guide. It's gayum, lesbietum, bisexualum, transvestietum. On Matisse Iela. Maybe we could meet up for a coffee before somewhere that you know. I open up my email and see my ex-girlfriend Chloe, who I call Cleo, at the top of my G-chat list. I hover over her name for a second and see she's got a new photo up of her and some queer in a blonde wig who looks really happy to be around her. My heart sinks and I feel like I'm going to throw up. Cleo is a person who makes a new friend every time she leaves the house, but she definitely picked this one up when she was out at a club. That some stranger gets to play at intimacy with her when I can't even write her hello feels like a betrayal. I think the worst part about breaking up with someone is not being able to tell them all the weird specific things that no one who isn't having sex with you wants to hear. It's like a pressure valve has been sealed off inside of me. I'm only allowed to speak generally, and I'm left sitting here in all the steam and confusion. I can hear my therapist's voice in my head. This breakup is a good opportunity to get to know yourself, to stop relying on others, namely Cleo, for validation. <laughs> I open up my spiral notebook to a blank 
page and start writing. The things I want to tell you, but I'm going to tell myself instead. Grandma eats this oily brown fish in the morning, which makes me wretch and feel so lonely for some reason, but you would probably like it, the fish. During the day here, it's about eating and how much you ate and what we'll eat and pretending that Grandpa doesn't drink. At night, they fight about the drinking. Riga fashion is a sight to behold. All the men wear these extremely long and pointy shoes with smoky paint on them. Strangely, the young women dress in a way that somehow suggests what they look like naked, a subtle art that I'm trying to get to the bottom of. Hopefully, gaying it up here will help with the loneliness. You taught me that, about finding your built-in family everywhere you go, even in these far reaches of Eastern Europe where the first time they held a gay pride parade, people mobbed it with human feces and holy water. I know this list isn't for you, but just one more thing. I hated it when you said, oh, maybe you should get a job at Democracy Now! when I lost my job. Like, why do you tell me what to do all the time? The implication being I'm not doing enough or I don't know what I'm doing. As if it's so easy to get a job at Democracy Now! anyhow. <laughs> also, why don't you get a job at fucking Democracy Now! And that time you said that all my honesty is demanding and it kind of grates. Well, you know what? You aren't even honest. You'll be like, that person is a secret millionaire who steals people's ideas, but then you're nice to them to their face because they just got into the Whitney Biennial or whatever. Let's face it. You said I was like a wet, warm bunny, and then you left me to be devoured by all those awful ice queens you call the future of everything. You think I want to be nice? Trust me, I don't. I would have turned myself into a fucking dolphin to be with you. Even, we both, even though we both know that I am a self-abandoning dolphin, and that's the issue. Okay, back to me talking to me. I'm so glad I'm not in New York and I don't have to say I'm going to events and struggle over going to events and then not go and hate myself for not going. <laughs> Grandma's new habit is chewing at the insides of her cheek and moving her jaw around like she is looking for something in her mouth. Thanks. Thank you, Lana. That was amazing. Um, okay. So I'm going to give a brief introduction for Nicole Seely and then Leanne Brown, who's uh, Nicole Seely's mentor in the Merge Surface B program at the Poetry Project, is also going to come up. So it's like a double intro. Syllables count. Grace as precision. I think of poetry as an arrow hitting a target I didn't even see before Nicole Seeley's words were landing there on that line, sturdy. She writes in the most compact adjective noun forms like scandalous nightstands or handwritten reprimands, shunning language's tendency towards excess. Her poems are like sculptures in acres of sequestered parks. Her, words, her word choices also shedding light on the shape of trees, clouds, or how writers internalize form. How does form become visible and challenged? Seely's forms may be centuries old, but the content is at times in conversation with tabloid magazines. For example, she's taken Brad Pitt's name and some of his gossip trails and turned words with that root of the seed pit from fruit. Nicole finds names of cities in pit. Celebrity is ingredient, but not the meal or contested documents of ballroom drag and Vogue culture in Seeley's project Legendary, which she is working on uh, as a fellow at the project, um, I think. 
The poem is a place for dignity to be restored for Venus Extravaganza, a Latina trans woman who was murdered in 1988. Celie's range of source material, even including board games characters, does tightrope walking within slant Shakespearean sonnets, ghazals, sestinas. Her poetry pierces through and against the vast landscape of free verse. To take these historical forms, but with slant techniques, like it's not iambic pentameter, or it's not the type of clear I'm in love with you subject of poem. The slant is in the complexities of friend love or broken loves meticulously reassembled, of heartbreak and precarious lives. In Celie's work is the reinvigorated shaping of beauty needed to counter sorrow. And I'm now gonna introduce uh, Leanne Brown, who will continue uh, talking about Nicole's work. Thanks for coming. I'm so excited to introduce Nicole Seely. And um, she was born in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. She's raised in, I have to say it right, Apopka, Florida. And she's um, the Kaveh Kahnem Graduate Fellow and recipient of the Elizabeth George Foundation Grant, um, among many other honors and awards. And she's the author of this new chapbook that's coming out called The Animal After Whom Other Animals Are Named winner of the 2015 Drinking Gourd Chapbook Poetry Prize, forthcoming from Northwestern University Press. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And um, she has um, an MFA in creative writing from New York University and an MLA in Africana Studies from the University of South Florida. And she's also the programs director at Kaveh Kahnem Foundation. If you don't know about Kaveh Kahnem, please check it out. Um, but one of the first things that drew me to Nicole's work um, is her use and transformation of, of found language around us. And I know she's doing some further work with that with a long poem, Chinto, that I hope she'll maybe read from tonight, I'm not sure. Um, and she uses, uses um, a prudential insurance company billboard as one of her titles. Maybe you've seen it on the West Side Highway. The first person who will live to be 150 years old has already been born. And um, I hope she reads that amazing poem as well. And um, it was just a coincidence that I saw today in the New York Times an article. I wonder what she was going to, I don't know if you saw that article today. War nurse, now 100, saw it all, which contains sentences like, and ladies, let us not go home broken blossomed. In other words, don't get pregnant. And um, when asked about her health, this 100-year-old woman said, well, I can't whip my weight in wildcats, but I feel okay. So I just love that... Um, Nicole has her ear open to this, you know, found language in the paper and in, and in conversation and, and on signs. And um, after that recognition, recognition of her use of found language, I was drawn deeper into her, um, you know, masterful, subtle use of poetic form. And um, I wanted to uh, quote just a little bit from an uh, interview with her where she says that she was asked about her use of form. She says, it's a matter of impulse, then intent. Initially, a poem reveals itself with its first and last lines as well as its form. First, I can visualize the structure. It becomes damn near difficult, if not impossible, to deviate. Through the birth of poem, though the birth of poems is organic, the actual work I invest into each is absolutely intentional. Not to say poems are math problems to be solved, but for me, the making of a poem involves the right brain and the left brain. With the work included here, the sonnet frame allows the poems to appear formal, regardless of their content. The form, with its history and perceived sophistication, provides the grace and dignity the work warrants. And um, 
Um, this room is a perfect listening chamber for Nicole Seeley's nuanced musicality and measure as she draws the bow of the line over strings of assonance and cons consonants, a carefully sculpted meaningful music emerges. I want to quote more here, but I don't want to, don't want to for fear of spoiler alerts, but um, as, ev as every line is brimming with levels of felt meaning full of presence, some of the best love poems I've ever read, after the, um, like the final line that will come, that you will hear after, oh, how we entertain the angels with our brief animation, oh, and the couplet after, hold your questions till the end. Please welcome Nicole Seeley. The first person who will live to be 150 years old has already been born for my mother. Scientists say the average human life gets three months longer every year. By this math, death will be optional, like a tie or dessert or suffering. My mother asks whether I'd want to live forever. I'd get bored, I tell her, but she says there's so much to do, meaning she believes there's much she hasn't done. 30 years ago, she was the age I am now, but unlike me, too industrious to, th to think about birds disappeared by rain. If only we had more time or enough money to be kept on ice until such a time, science could bring us back. Of late, my mother has begun to think life short-lived. I'm too young to convince her otherwise. The one and only occasion I was in the same room as the Mona Lisa. It was encased in glass behind what I imagine were velvet ropes. There's far less between ourselves and oblivion, skin that often defeats its very purpose. Or maybe its purpose isn't protection at all, but rather to provide a place similar to a doctor's waiting room in which to sit until our names are called. Hold your questions until the end. Mother, measure my wide open arms. We still have this much time to kill. I wanna thank all of you for coming out tonight. This is such a treat. Um, and my co-readers, Svetlana Kiddo and the Poetry Project, Stacy, thank you for having me, and Leanne, thank you for that amazing introduction, and Ariel, there you go, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I think I'm gonna cut and splice the cento that Leanne talked about. It's a long poem, so I'm just gonna read excerpts from that between poems from the chapbook. And a cento, if you don't know, is a poem comprised entirely of lines by other poets. Um, yeah. Cento for the night I said I love you. Today, gentle reader, is as good a place to start. But you knew that, didn't you? Then let us give ourselves over to the noise of a great scheme that included everything, that indicts everything. Every coldness ever breathed into the world's deep blood. I was there 
so I know what's true. A starry sky in August, a rest on a mountain peak. This new land, but love, I'll concede this for a single beautiful word, a small country inseparable. How y'all doing? Okay? Okay. Medical history. I've been pregnant. I've had sex with a man who's had sex with men. I can't sleep. My mother has, my mother's mother had asthma. My father had a stroke. My father's mother has high blood pressure. Both grandfathers died from diabetes. I drink, I don't smoke. Xanax for flying, propranolol for anxiety. My eyes are bad, I'm spooked by wind. Cousin Lily died from an aneurysm. Aunt Ilda, a heart attack. Uncle Ken, wise as he was, was hit by a car, as if to disprove whatever theory toward which I write. And I understand the stars in the sky are already dead. Instead of executions, think death erections. I wish the day hadn't. Dawn has claimed another sky, its birds. I watch from my burning stake, the broken necks. Once this lot allowed wildflowers, nothing worse than bruised wildflowers. Darling dawn, death mask to which I've grown accustomed. Show me one pretty thing, no heavier than a hummingbird. I feel like the introductions made me funnier than I am. <laughs> Thank you for that. So back to the cento. Cento for the night I said I love you. Like blackbirds pushing against glass, I didn't hold myself back. I gave in completely and went all the way to the vague influence of the distant stars. I saw something like an angel spread across the horizon like some dreadful prophecy refusing to be contained to accept limits. She said, are you sure you know what you're doing? I'm gonna lighten things up with the lynching poem. <laughs> uh, so I was at um, the Tate Museum and I saw this sculpture by Thomas Hershorn and it's, uh, it's like this wooden piece with uh, mannequins wrapped in duct tape um, hoisted up on this kind of wooden structure. So, and it was called Candelabra with Heads, and this poem is also called Candelabra with Heads, after the sculpture by Thomas Hershorn. Had I not brought with me my mind, 
as it has been made, this thing, this brood of mannequins cocooned and mounted on a wooden scaffold might be eight infants swaddled and sleeping, might be eight fleshy fingers on one hand, might be a family tree with eight pictured frames. Such treaties occur in the brain. Can you see them hanging? Their shadow is a crowd stripping the tree of souvenirs. Skin shrinks and splits. The bodies weep fat the color of yolk. Can you smell the burning? Fat the color of yolk. Can you smell the burning? Skin shrinks and splits. The bodies weep. Is a crowd stripping the tree of souvenirs. Can you see them hanging? Their shadow frames. Such treaties occur in the brain. Might be a family tree with eight pictured. Might be eight fleshy fingers on one hand. Might be eight infants swaddled and sleeping and mounted on a wooden scaffold. This brood of mannequins cocooned as it has been made. This thing had I not brought with me my mind. Virginia is for lovers. At Latoya's pride picnic, Leonard tells me he and his longtime love, Pete, broke up. He says Pete gave him the house in Virginia. Great, I say, that's the least his ass could do. I daydream my friend and me into his new house, sit us in the kitchen of his three-bedroom, two-bath brick colonial outside Hungry Mother Park, where, legend has it, the Shawnee raided settlements with the wherewithal of wild children catching pigeons. A woman and her androgynous child escaped, wandering the wilderness, stuffing their mouths with the bark of choke cherry root. Such was the circumstance under which the woman collapsed. The child, who could say nothing except hungry mother, led help to the mountain where the woman lay, swelling as wood swells in humid air. Leonard's mouth is moving. Two boys hit a shuttlecock back and forth across an invisible net. A toddler struggles to pull her wagon from a sandbox. No, Leonard says, it's not a place where you live. I got the H in V. H-I before my friend could finish. And as if he'd been newly ordained, I took his hands and kissed them. Excuse me. Back to the Chentos. <clears throat> Chento for the night, I said, I love you. To the end of the spine, which he can cause to shiver like a root in the rain. Seeking, I think, a light that waits. He went before anybody came, and his watch showed years, not hours as suspected. I am cold now, and I cannot begin to numb the senses indiscriminately. Some say we're lucky to be alive, to have a good portion of the morning. It isn't ordinary. The way the world unravels from a distance can look like pain, eager as penned in horses.
unframed. Handle this body, spoil it with oils. Let the residue corrode, ruin it. I have no finish, no fragile edge. On what scrap of me have we not made desire paths so tried as to bury ourselves therein? I beg, spare me gloved hands, monuments to nothing. I mean to die a relief against every wall. This next poem is for my husband, John, and it's entitled Object Permanence. We wake as if surprised the other is still there, each petting the sheet to be sure. How have we managed our way to this bed, beholden to heat like dawn indebted to light? Though we're not so self-important as to think everything has led to this, everything has led to this, there's a name for the animal love makes of us. Named, I think, like rain for the sound it makes. You are the animal after whom other animals are named. Until there's none left to laugh. Days will start with the same startle and end with caterpillars gorged on milkweed. Oh, how we entertain the angels with our brief animation. Oh, how I'll miss you when we're dead. Okay, so I think I'm gonna read one from the legendary series that Leanne talked about. Um, and it's about the seminal documentary, well, folks from the seminal documentary, Car Paris is Burning. And this poem is I guess in the voice of Venus extravaganza, and it begins with an epigraph. I'd like to be a spoiled rich white girl, Venus extravaganza. I want to be married in church, in white, nothing borrowed or blue. I want a white house in Peekskill far from the city, white picket fence fencing in my lily white lilies. Oh, were I whiter than white. A couple kids, one girl, one boy, both white, birthright, all the amenities of white, golf courses, guest houses, garage with white washer dryer set. Whatever else white affords, I want in multiples of white. Two of nothing is something if they're white. Never mind another neutral, off white won't do. I want to be white as the unsparing light at tunnel's end. And this is the last poem, not my last poem, but the last from the Cento. We got 10 more minutes of me. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding, not, not that much. Um, Cento for the night I said I love you. And it came to pass that meaning faltered, came detached. I learned my name was not my name. I was not myself, myself a show of love to what you love as some place I would love. I did not know what to say. My mouth 
so human and frail. I am again the child with too many questions as old as light. I am always learning the same thing. One day, all this will only be memory. One day soon, for no good reason. Well, I think I'll just read two more. Yeah, two more. Imagine Sisyphus happy. Give me tonight to be inconsolable, so the death drive does not declare itself, so the moonlight does not convince sunrise. I was born before sunrise, when morning masquerades as night, the temperature of blood quivering like a mouth in mourning. How do we author our gentle birth, the height we were? Were we gods rolling stars across a sundog sky, the same as scarabs? We fall somewhere between god and mineral, angel and animal, expecting a thing as sacred as the sun to rise and fall like an ordinary beast. Deer sniff lifeless fawn before leaving. Elephants encircle the skulls and tusks of their dead, none wanting to leave the bones behind, none knowing their leave will lessen the loss. But birds pluck their own feathers. Dogs lick themselves to wound. Allow me this luxury. Give me tonight to cut and salt the open. Give me a shovel to uproot the mandrake and listen for its scream. Give me a face that toils so closely with stone. It is itself stone. I promise to enter the flesh again. I promise to circle, to ascend. I promise to be happy tomorrow. And thank you again for listening. It's been a pleasure. And even the gods. Even the gods misuse the unfolding blue. Even the gods misread the wind flowers nod towards sunlight as consent to consume. Still, you envy the horse that draws their chariot, bone of their bone. The wilting mash of air alone keeps you from scaling Olympus with gifts of dead or dying things dangling from your mouth. Your breath like the sea inching away it is rumored, gods grow where the blood of a hanged man drips. You insist on being this man. The gods abuse your grace. Still, you'd rather live among the clear, cloudless white, enjoying what is left of their ambrosia. Who should be happy this time? Who brings cake to whom? Pray the gods, pray the gods do not misquote your covetous pulse for chaos the black from which they were conceived. Even the eyes of gods must adjust to light. Even gods have gods. Thank you. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.